Season two of the All at Once podcast is presented by Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties, proud sponsors since the podcast's beginning. Contact Alan and Beth Stanfield for all your realty needs. They're the actual best in every way. You know, but I thought, because what we had been told, our whole ideology, this is my fault, this is the woman's fault, the problem is you. How you grow again the garden from This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. I'm Kelly Browning. And I'm Sarah McDuffie. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. To God be the glory. We want you to know that our show is not for little ears. Also, the content we cover may be triggering for those who have experienced trauma. The people we interview present ideas that we align with, and they also present ideas that make us uncomfortable. I invite you to join us in this discomfort as our views, opinions, and experiences are challenged. So, take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. Megan, thanks for being on the podcast. And I think I found your podcast whenever I was originally thinking about starting my own, I literally just searched and Googled women who are Christians who also are feminists (laughs) because there were such few, very little content out there that uh, wasn't afraid of the word feminism. And so thank you for not shying away from these hard things. Of course. The name of uh, Megan's podcast is Faith and Feminism, by the way, which I think is awesome. <laughs> it definitely was eye-catching to me. And I was like, oh, this is this is what I need to listen to right here. So being raised in this kind of fundamental evangelical environment, I I realized looking back that I was kind of taught what to believe and that I wasn't supposed to question it. As I reflect back, I remember there were some things along the way that I kind of felt uncomfortable with, but I just kind of bought into the whole thing because I really kind of felt like I shouldn't be questioning these Mm -hmm. things or exploring other perspectives. So my whole journey into really starting to deconstruct everything and question some of my long-held beliefs that I now no longer hold too fully really started when I had a bad experience in a Christian marriage and with the church as a result of that. Um, it's a little underselling it, I think. <laughs> yeah. So I, I I was abused by a man who said he was a Christian and promised to love and care for me. And then he became abusive. And when I started speaking up about it, the message that I got from Christians around me was that I needed to be silent and more submissive and that I needed to care more about managing his reputation than my own safety and sanity. So I'm I'm a little bit ashamed to admit that that was the thing that like it took me having a personal crisis for me to really start to question and dig into all of this stuff. It was for my own sake. It wasn't because I was caring for other people initially. It was, oh, I experienced abuse. And then I started to go, how many other people are experiencing this? And that's when I really started to dig into all of it. So that was kind of my like wake up and smell the coffee moment. 
but you got into this in a different way. Can you tell us about how you kind of got on this journey? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first of all, I want to say I'm so sorry for how you were treated by the church and by men who had this kind of theology. I wish your story was uncommon. It is not. And so I will get deeper into that, but just really digging into the theology that we have and how it actually primes the ground for abuse, but I'll get there. So I grew up in the conservative evangelical church. I was raised with purity culture. I'm also raised with a very heavy complementarianism, the idea that men were supposed to be in charge of basically everything and women were supposed to submit to men. Most of my teachings focus on how to be a good housewife and how to serve his dreams and how to make him more comfortable and how to make myself desirable to him. Growing up in the, the context I did, I didn't see those kind of teachings being told. So for example, when I was like 13, maybe 12, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on this teaching of purity culture. And all of the girls of my youth group had to write this letter to our future husbands um, about how we were unopened gifts that we were, you know, kind of shaving our purity for them. Then they like sealed it with wax and we were supposed to save it until we got married. But you didn't see any of the men or the young boys writing letters like this, only the women. And so I started to notice this huge difference in the way that women and young girls are teach, treated versus men. I mean, I also saw this when we went to the pool and girls had to be fully clothed with like shorts and t-shirts where the young guys could wear whatever they want. They could wear a Speedo. One time I had a guy show up to youth group in a banana hammock, like a thong. And it was funny. It was funny to everyone. But here the girls are wearing shorts and t-shirts in the pool. So we see all of these... <laughs> definitely double standards. And what I was told is that, well, men, you know, they can't control their thoughts. They can't control their actions. And so we have to do the work for them. So it's kind of this narrative that men are supposed to be in charge of everything except their sexual urges, which obviously sets up a huge <laughs> problem when it comes to sexual assault and sexual abuse and what we're teaching men and what we're teaching women. So when I was 13, I remember I was reprimanded for wearing a shirt on a mission trip that it was a it was a t-shirt. But when I rose my hand as I grew older, um, a small sliver of my stomach would show. I was reaching up for my luggage and um, a small sliver of my stomach showed. And, and my youth pastor told me that it was, it was shameful, uh, that I would make men do bad things and just heaped a ton of shame on me. And of course, for the rest of the week, I wore nothing but, you know, baggy gym clothes. And I thought, you know, that would protect me, but it didn't because a week later I was sexually assaulted by a stranger on the street who grabbed my breast. And so that was like my first time feeling immense guilt because what was my teaching? Like this was my fault. Men can't control myself. It's my job to control them. And so I must have somehow caused this even at the age of 13. And so I didn't tell anyone because I felt so much shame so much shame about what happened to me for over a decade um, until I was at least 23, I think, because maybe maybe even later when I first started telling people what happened to me. And obviously it was terrifying and I had like nightmares after that and it was just a terrible experience. But the theology I had grown up with taught me that it was my fault. That's just like one example. And so when we're talking about the church and like sexual assault and sexual abuse, we need to look at kind of the teachings that were given. And so I didn't realize it at the time, but 
it was as I got older. I went to college, um, got a degree in journalism right as newspapers were dying. Um, I did have an internship at a newspaper and I hated it. It was very cutthroat, which would make sense because it was an industry that was in huge flux um, and transition. And so I said, you know what, I don't know what to do. So, um, you know, given the options that I had in the church, I really loved God and I couldn't be a pastor or preacher or teacher. So I went into missions and that was what was available to me. Through the missions work I did, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of sexually exploited, oppressed women. You know, for so long, I mean, I told that small story about me being sexually assaulted. That was not the only time I can, you know, I had three or four more times just in my high school teenage age where I was sexually assaulted or had part of my body grabbed without permission or touched without permission by friends and strangers. And so, you know, but I thought, because what we had been told, our whole ideology, this is my fault, this is the woman's fault. And more than that, we were trained to see things on such an individual level. This is due to individual sin. This isn't yeah. anything bigger than you. The problem is you. And so when I got admissions, I started to see that this story wasn't unique to me. In fact, what was happening around the world and every country I'd been to, I, I went on a program called the world race, which I went to 11 countries was that this story that had happened to me was happening again and again and again and again, and actually in a much more extreme way. So I encountered female genital cutting and mutilation and I encountered rape and I encountered girls fighting to get an education. And it was through that experience that I started to see number one, that this is not, you can't tell me this is just individual. This is most women I come into contact have a story like this. Yeah. Why is that? And so I started asking the question why. And when I started asking the question why, I started to see that this is a lot bigger than what we've been told. This is actually due to a way of thinking, a way of theology, namely patriarchy. And to define what patriarchy is, it's a system built by men for men. And so uh, if we're looking at the world as a whole, we live in a very patriarchal world. And, um, you know, <laughs> you read the Bible and it's, you know, we're supposed to be better as Christians, right? We're supposed to be more liberated and uh, have a gospel of liberation. Yet I was finding that the church was one of the greatest upholders of patriarchy. And this became crystal clear to me. I, I did missions for five years, mainly working with sexually exploited women and I was leading a trip and um, we were in a bar. The organization I partnered with gave women an opportunity to leave the sex trade and get a full college education with safe houses and providing for dependents. It was a really incredible organization. And this American guy and his, his American buddy pulled us over. These were the men who were buying these trafficked women. And they asked us why we were there and we told them. And we turned the question back on him and asked him why he was there. And he went on this really long tirade about how women here, I was in the Philippines, uh, were raised right. Women who are sex trafficked were raised right. And they knew how to respect men. And that everywhere else, women didn't know how to respect men. And so he came to the Philippines to these ex sexually exploited women to get the respect that he deserved. And he kept on going on and on about how women didn't know their place and how um, women need to, you know, just this, this idea of respect. And as he's going on, it hits me that he sounds just like all of the evangelical pastors I had growing up. And it hit me that this problem, you know, 
I had been working to fight sex trafficking for the last five years. And what I saw is that we could rescue a woman or help give her the resources she needed to get out, but she would be so quickly replaced and that we weren't going to make a difference until we fought the demand. But I didn't understand the demand. I didn't understand why men did this. You know, I was told it was due to sexual urges, right? These sexual urges that men have, that they were uncontrollable. But what I saw that night, this wasn't about sexual urges. This was about a man needing domination and him getting the respect that he felt that he deserved. And as I thought back on all of my other interactions that I had with Johns, it seemed to be a common theme. They wanted respect. They wanted um, to get the respect they felt they lacked elsewhere. As I had that realization, I realized that I was being complicit in a system that harmed men, um, that I was being, by being silent, by uh, submitting to men in my life, by feeding into this narrative that men need control and dominance and women need to be submissive and, and meet that need and be sexually available to them. Because remember, we also grew up with this idea that once you're married, you have to be sexually available to your husband at all times, or he can't control himself and will go cheat on you or get addicted to pornography or something like that. And so it was just this moment of crystal clear clarity. I was like, no, this is this is not about sexual urges. Like women also have sexual urges. This is something bigger than this. This is about power and dominance and control. And so once I realized that my church was also complicit, that I was also complicit when I went around, along with these gender roles, um, it changed everything for me. I quit my job as a missionary and I started a podcast called Faith and Feminism. I wrote a book. Um, women Rising, I've, we haven't said it yet. Yeah. Women Rising yeah. is Megan's Women book. Rising. Yes. Yeah, so I wrote a book called Women Rising, kind of just telling the story. It's like, how often does the church, I think, honestly, have a real heart to help sex trafficking without realizing their complicity in a system that creates enormous power differentials that contribute to sex trafficking and sexual abuse and all of these other issues? And um, this is not just me saying it, like, this is a researched like researchers, psychologists, sociologists are all coming away with sexual assault is not due to sexual urges, but actually due to power differentials. And so um, there's one psychoanalyst, her name is Lynn Yonak. She does a lot of study about this. She wrote an article in Psychology Today about it. But this idea that <laughs> women need to submit and men need to be in charge contributes to enormous power differentials. And if power differentials are due or what causes sexual assault, then we really need to look at the fruit of this gender role theology that we've been given. So, I mean, that's just a brief bit of my story and how I got into it. But I think the overarching message is I grew up being sexually assaulted and sexually objectified. I thought the story was just mine until I found the story again and again and again and other women's stories and having the profound realization that it was actually due to the system of patriarchy, to the power differentials that patriarchy created, that we were experiencing this in the first place and that the church and I was complicit in these scripts. Can you talk about specifically... What was it for you that made you realize fighting the demand for sex trafficking meant fighting patriarchy, both inside and outside the church? What what moment was that for you? I mean, I think it was the moment that I shared earlier where that man said he came to get the mm. respect he deserved and he sounded just like my evangelical pastors. I think I had been around similar ideology my whole life, but for some reason it hit that time. 
Um, and so for me, it's, I mean, how many of our churches will give thousands of thousands of dollars to fight sex trafficking, but they, from their pews, preach a theology of women's submission and men's dominance. Hmm. I mean, it was, it's just like throwing money at a problem without asking the why of the problem. And so for me, I think we really need to examine these teachings that that say that men should be powerful and that women should be submissive. I, I know all the time we hear teachings and what you received, a woman is being abused and we're like, okay, be more submissive. Like, no, that is not going to help anything because a man is not being abusive because women are not being submissive enough. A man is being abusive because he has been taught that he is entitled to a woman's body and time and space and almost like a sense of ownership. I mean, what kind of teachings do we teach in the church except that women are there to serve his calling, that women were made for men? I mean, that is literally theology. I, I wrote a post recently where I said women were not created for men. And I got so much pushback from people in the church saying, no, 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 women are there for men. And so I think we need to examine this theology. Of course, men think they own women. If we think, if our theology says women were, women were created for the pleasure and the use of men. Um, and so I think we need to really examine this. And I think, I mean, not only do these gender scripts hurt women, obviously you shared your story. I shared so many stories of women being abused by these uh, systems of patriarchy, but this is also harmful to men. If we look at statistics in terms of suicide, men are far more likely to create, commit suicide. Um, if you're looking at who is most likely to commit violence, it's men. And most of the mass shooters, I think it's like 98% of mass shooters are also men. And we need to ask this question, is it that men are more um, prone towards violence naturally? Are they born that way? Or is this something that they're taught? And I would argue this has so much to do with the conditioning that we teach men that they can't express um emotions and like sadness or grief be, or pain because they'll be seen as sissy or soft or womanly. And so they've been taught that the only expect acceptable emotion they're allowed to express is anger. Yeah. And so we see men, I think, who have human emotions just like anyone else because we're human and they're told that they need to stuff these emotions down. And so I think that accounts for why we see higher suicide rates and men more likely to commit violence is because they don't have the tools. They've been told that the tools they use uh, that we all need to use to be emotionally healthy are not available to them. And so it hurts men as well. The system is not good for anyone. Um, and it's creating, I think, a violent society, one where, where women are not seen as full people and men are told that they, you know, are better than women, that they're closer to God, that they, oh, I feel like we've almost made men many gods in Christianity, this idea that even women have to go to their husbands to have a relationship with God, like he's the mediator. Like that's, that's, that is the job of the Holy Spirit. That is not the job of your husband. Yes. That is not, that, I think that is heresy. And so I think we really need to examine this. How is it that we almost treat men like they're little gods? And you know what? I There's actually a really good explanation for this um, from a historian. Her name is Beth Allison Barr. She wrote the book called The Making of Biblical Womanhood. But this actually started after the Reformation. So um, those who are familiar with Christian history, we had the Catholic Church that was kind of corrupt doing all these Things like the, 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 basically finding your salvation through the priest and the priest would like sell your salvation, you know, like here, tie the lot and you can 
get free or whatever. So it had some issues. The, the, the Catholic Church, the Christian Church had some issues. And so we have Martin Luther with the 95 Theses who broke away. And so there's a lot of good things that came from the Reformation. But what it did is it changed priesthood to instead of the priests, it turned it into like husbands instead of women. And so in that way, it's like men became the priests of the household. And obviously that has been uh, used in a way that has harmed women. And so, but that that actually has historical roots. It's not actually mm-hmm. biblical roots. This is something that happened during the Reformation. And if you look back in early church history, we see so many women um, empowered. But like, so we need to understand our history and that the system that we're living in today I mean, it might have some biblical influence, it might have some Jesus influence, but it also has a lot of historical influence, cultural influence. And I think people go around and talk about their biblical worldview without understanding that their biblical worldview is a very cultural worldview. Um, If you go to a different nation and go to a Christian church there, they might have very different ideas of male headship and egalitarianism. And for example, I um, was talking to a pastor in, in Africa and his work is mainly empowering women and girls like in this patriarchal culture. And he has women leading in his church and he, he had American missionaries or visitors come down and they reprimanded him for having women leadership in his church. And he's like, wait, where are you getting this? You know? Yeah. And so we need to understand that even the understanding of what we have is extremely cultural um and it's not just simply biblical a lot of the bible has been interpreted through um white men and even further than that if we're looking at there's another historian her name is Kristen Dume she wrote the book Jesus and John Wayne Mm -hmm. and she talks about how the theology we have is actually again really really cultural um and actually really political a lot you see this tie between the conservative politics and the church well that was actually on purpose um and so we need to examine this and understand that the faith we've been given, this is not to say that, you know, Jesus, I still believe in Jesus. I still call myself um, a Christ follower, but I also understand that so much of what I was told as a child wasn't biblical. The church I grew up in wasn't actually biblical. It was cultural. And, and, and in the United States, a lot of the things that the church cares about is actually so tied to conservative politics and not necessarily biblical truths. Yes. And so I think we just need to examine and understand that there's more of that we, than we've been told, but I think we've been so shamed and afraid. We see the way that people step who step out um, get their books torn from the shelf. So even if we talk about, for example, it talks a lot in Jesus and John Wayne about how in the the 70s and 80s, like it became also like a huge money-making enterprise. And so we have books like our companies like Lifeway, it's a Christian book. And so everyone got their Christian books from Lifeway, but Lifeway only chose certain perspectives that match their conservative worldview to sell and their stores. And so we see people like Jen Hatmaker or Rob Bell having their books burned, not being sold. And so these were the ones that were shaping Christianity, these certain subset of voices. There's so much more diversity and life to the Christian faith than what we've been taught because it's been so um, guarded, honestly, for the protection of power. And so um, another example I have, I could literally talk about this all day because I'm still a, a Christian um, I obviously get called a not people tell me I'm going to hell and that I'm not a Christian all the time. I'm like, you know what? I have 
read my Bible cover to cover probably more times than you have, you know, like I know my Bible, I know the research, I know the history. Um, and I still call myself a Christ follower because I believe in Jesus and I believe in the way that he told us to live. And I felt I like, I want to follow his teachings, but you know, we, we were told over and over again that the Bible is, should be read simply. And I think that is so funny because they clearly do not read the Bible simply. They take these verses that say women should submit. And like, that's very clear. But they ignore the verse right after that that says slaves should submit. So are you saying slavery is okay? Because simply that's what it means. If you're saying this is simply. Or if you take the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he's like, how can I be, you know, a better follower of you? And he's like, give everything away you have to the poor. And the, and we don't see Christians doing that. Why are they not doing that? Well, it has a certain context. It was to that one guy at that one time in this one situation. Right. Okay, so you do understand context. You do understand that this was to a specific person, a specific audience at a specific time, yet you're saying that that doesn't apply to other parts of scripture. So when I hear that simple, like the Bible should be read simply, no, there's so much context. There's so much that we don't understand. And we do need to understand the cultural um, time to understand even what Jesus is saying. So we, we take the story of Mary and Martha, for example. And I was always taught that story. I don't even know how I was taught it, but it was definitely not the way I think I view it now. But we have the story of Mary and Martha where, you know, these women live in an extremely patriarchal culture, much more extreme than it is today. Women were not really allowed to interact with men. They weren't really supposed to be outside the house and especially not outside the house with men. They they were supposed to be, um, you know, essentially the property of men to prepare their house and whatever. And so we have the story of Mary and Martha and Jesus walks into this house and we have um, Martha preparing the home as a good woman should. And uh, Mary is like, you know what? I'm actually going to sit at the feet of Jesus, which is so offensive because she's in the presence of men. She's learning what she's not supposed to do. And to sit at the feet of a rabbi is to say that you want to, you know, one day be a rabbi yourself. You want to be a teacher yourself. So she is breaking with all of her gender norms, these quote unquote biblical gender norms that she was given, like what we would call biblical gender norms at the, um, at the time. And so Martha's like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. My sister is not doing what she should as a woman and goes to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, tell Mary to help me. She's not doing what she should be. And Jesus says, Mary, Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. And so I think even in that one story, which of course I was always taught it through a white patriarchal lens, it was never told to me like, well, this is actually huge yes. that Jesus is telling Mary to break with her gender role and it's better. But we never get taught it that way. And so we need to understand that uh, <laughs> there's so much more to even scripture than we've been told because there's a cultural context of extreme patriarchy. So there's a bigger story there. But even if we took it in today's patriarchal culture or today's biblical norms, what she's doing is offensive. So how is it better? And so I think we need to ask ourselves these questions and understand historical context and understand and look at the Bible in a new way and not necessarily in this way that it's been spoon fed to us by men trying to protect exactly. their power. There was there's this part in your book where I was I I loved what you said. Essentially, you said we need to get to the point where we can hear someone saying stop it you're hurting me without hearing I hate you. And to me that was just mm -hmm. so powerful because I I think that is what people in in Christian societies tend to hear right away when they hear people saying I'm a feminist or, you know, I'm advocating for women's rights or I think the patriarchy is harmful. Even if you say both to women and men, 
they don't really register that it's also harmful to men, but they immediately get defensive and start talking about how you're, mm-hmm. you're just hating on men. So can you talk about that a little bit and just how mm-hmm. a better way to look at that yeah. or a different perspective? Yeah. So, you know, I feel like there's so much to be said here. There really is so much. I mentioned earlier that Western culture, specifically white evangelical Christianity, is trained to see everything on an individual level. They do not see systems. And so a lot of my research, I guess, and done um, has been done as of late is has been done into womanist, which is black women's interpretation of um, scripture. And also understanding the, the difference between this idea of, of ruler's church versus people's church, which is an idea, um, I believe, by... Um, James Baldwin, but don't quote me on that. I had a guest on my podcast recently. Her name is Rose J. Percy, who does a lot of teachings on this concept versus rulers versus people church. And so just to go into that a little bit, um, the church has always been used as a system of oppression. This has been happening since at least Constantine's time, where he made Christianity the natural religion. And we see governments using Christianity to harm people. And so there's several different examples of this. But if we even look at early missions in Europe in the 15th and 16th centuries, there are these papal um, bulls, these edicts that people could take over land. And if it wasn't ruled by a quote-unquote Christian monarch, then you could take over that land and kill or convert everyone to take that land for a Christian. And so if you look at here in Canada and the United States, um, even back into the 1800, uh, 1800s, the way that people justified stealing and and killing, uh, stealing the land of Native Americans and then killing them was because the idea that them as Christians were better. And so ultimately, Native Americans did not deserve their land because they were not Christians. And so us, this idea of manifest destiny, taking the land for Christians was how it was defended and actually defended in the Supreme Court. So there's a case called McIntosh versus something else, which I don't remember. I, I write about this in my book. But even that idea, we need to understand that Christianity has been used to oppress, to gain power, um, to harm people, to commit genocide. What is what is killing a group of people who aren't Christian besides genocide? And so we need to understand that there's always been a facet of Christianity who has used Christianity to appear holy and good while committing harm to one another, which is totally anti-gospel. If you look at what Jesus says, what are the two greatest commandments? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Like these are the two greatest commandments. And then all of the laws of all of the prophets can be summed up in these two. Do you think it's loving your neighbor as yourself to take their land to commit genocide? Of course not. This is not the gospel yet it's been used. And so even uh, if you look at slavery here in the United States, the biggest protectors of slavery and the biggest instigators of Jim Crow were often quote unquote Christians, Christians using the Bible to justify the oppression and exploitation of other people. At the same time, there has always been a church of liberators. The biggest um, fighters are the biggest abolitionists. We're also using their Christian faith to say no one should be in slavery, right? And so we have these two warring ideas of Christianity. One is a church of liberation. And the, and if we're looking at the United States, that church of liberation has been predominantly found in the Black church. If you look at the, the faith of civil rights leaders, their faith, if we look at Martin Luther King Jr., he, he 
all of his work was done because he was a believer in Christ and wanted to live his life according to the teachings of Christ. But of course, you know, when he was alive, I mean, a bunch of Christians said he was a communist. He was calling him all of these names, um, but he did it because he was following Christ. And so we need to understand that there's always been a ruler's church and a people's church. And again, you're going to find a lot more about this from, from Black churches. I think along with the tactics of the ruler's church has been teaching people to see everything as individual. We don't see systems. We don't see systems of white supremacy. We don't see patriarchy. We don't see all of these different systems that are in play. And it's funny because the Bible even warns us, it says our battle our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities. So what is our battle against? Like people have turned it to mean something else, but I think powers and principalities are quite literally powers and principalities unjust governments, patriarchy, white supremacy, but we can't see it because in, in the white evangelical church, we've been raised to see everything as individual. There aren't systems at play. This is one guy's sin. Uh, you know, we keep on hearing stories of men abusing their power in the church. Ravi Zacharias, uh, just recently the Hillsong pastor, like literally I could go on and on and on and on. We all could about men in power in the church, abusing that power and harming others. And everyone keeps saying, well, he's, it's just an individual sin. Let's forgive him, whatever. Cool. Like I'm all about forgiveness, but what I am not about is not asking why and asking why does this keep happening? And so it's taking that idea that this is just, oh, Ravi just had a mistake. You know, it was his just individual. He's only human. Oh, this guy only had a mistake. He's only human. Why do we keep on hearing this story? Well, this is because this is a lot bigger than this one guy. This is because of cultural messages that we have received of how to behave in the church and the power that comes from that. And so when I say that we've been raised to see things on an individual way, we've been told everything is an individual's fault. When we see what women continually abused by their husbands, it's because the husband isn't following God close enough or the woman, the woman isn't being submissive enough, but the whole system is patriarchy and patriarchy is what's actually causing harm. And so I talked earlier about how power differentials contribute to abuse. And so for me, um, what I want the church to see is ask the question why, and then to see the systems at, at play. And so when people say women's rights and, and people are like, oh, you can't be feminist, feminists hate men. No, I think what you're, you're having a problem with seeing is that, that there's a system in play. When we talk about bigger things like feminism, fe feminism or Black Lives Matter, they're talking about the system here. A bunch of people aren't dying at the hands of cops just because you know, this one guy did something wrong. This is a system at play. And that's what they're trying to say when they're saying Black Lives Matter. This keeps happening. There are systems and powers in play that makes this keep happening. And so when we say that, when I say I'm a feminist, what I'm saying is I keep on seeing a system where men are abusing women. This, this is just like undeniable. This is like statistically, I could back this up all day. And so what I'm saying is, we need to change the system of patriarchy because this is harming people. And so it's so funny because like, you know, I hear all the time, oh, you're just a man hater. No, like I said um, earlier, what you mentioned is when I am asking someone to do better, it doesn't mean I hate them. And it doesn't even mean I'm necessarily critiquing them because so like I'm saying women's rights and you're taking yeah. it as an individual insult. Um, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there is a system that continually hurts women. This is not about you. This is about a bigger system that I'm talking about. And so I think it's funny because when we think about like how we would want to improve, like say, how do I improve as a person? I have to number one, become self-aware, become aware of my flaws. Maybe I'm, you know, struggling in some area. 
How do I improve except by being honest with myself and then working to make it better? And we can understand this concept on an individual level. If I'm struggling with something, of course, it makes sense to want to make it better, but we fail to see that it works the same way with systems and we can't be We can't get better until we acknowledge what's wrong. And so I think people fail to see that. They fail to see the system. They take it as an individual insult. And if we're looking, I think from a biblical worldview, which again, carries so much ammunition with that, but if we're looking specifically at the Liberators Church for the faith of um, Black folks, of the, the faith of civil rights leaders, they talk about systems all the time. They understand this. And so for me, that's my hope. When I say I'm a feminist, when I'm saying men are hurting women, I'm not talking about that one guy that hurt that one guy or that one guy that hurt me. I'm talking about the fact that this is happening again and again and again. And this is not due to an individual sin. This is due to teachings that teach that men are better than women or that men are more powerful or they're more adept or they're better leaders or they're better speakers or they're better whatever. This is all contributing to a system where women are seen as less. We can even see in our culture, we're raised with ideas that, you know, phrases like, don't be a sissy. Like being a woman is bad. Like it's everywhere, all over. We have been taught in our society that being a woman is less than being a man. And that is where the harm comes from. Little girls are told they can they can have male superheroes and women superheroes to look up to. But if a little boy has a woman superhero to look up to, he's made fun of. This is all pointing to the fact that though as a society, we don't want to say it. It's obvious that we view women as less than men. And of course, that contributes to the harm of women. So Megan, what happened when you, in your personal story, what happened when you started speaking up and resisting the patriarchal teachings of the church and Christianity? I think we all know (laughs) what happens. I think everyone knows what's going to happen, right? We've seen it happen to so many other people. Like we saw, again, I already mentioned some major, you know, evangelical players that were outed when they stepped outside these bounds of uh, white evangelical Christianity. Um, So that happened to me. Um, I was told I was going to hell by a lot of people. Um, I was told I was a false teacher. Um, my family is still super disappointed in me. They, I, you know, I just wrote a book and I don't think any of them are going to read it. I think they're embarrassed that I should, I haven't changed my, I got married at four years ago, but I didn't change my last name. And so my last name is attached to them and I think it embarrasses them. And I had friends who I'd been friends with over for a decade who told me they couldn't be associated with me because they couldn't Mm. be tied to the liberal agenda. They couldn't support me because I was now the liberal agenda because I believed in rights for women. And again, I want to emphasize the tie between conservative Christian, like conservative politics. The fact that, I mean, my friend, she was upset that I believe Dr. Ford. How could I not believe Dr. Ford after spending five years listening to the stories of sexual assault survivors? How could I not believe her when her story sounded like all of so many of the other stories I heard before. Can you remind our listeners who Dr. Ford is? Okay. So yeah, during the Kavanaugh hearing, so Brett Kavanaugh was a candidate to be confirmed for the Supreme Court. He now is. But in 2017, he was accused by a woman of sexual assault, attempted rape is what I would call it. Um, I think they called it attempted rape. I'm not sure. But Dr. Ford, uh, when she was in high school with him, I guess guess I should say claimed that um, he tried to rape her. And she got away. It created a huge storm. Conservative evangelicals, most evangelicals 
uh, believed Kavanaugh that he should be confirmed because he was conservative and would uphold their values. They didn't really want to listen to Dr. Ford. They said she was being paid to speak up. But hearing her story, I saw nothing. A woman who is clearly successful, who's a doctor, who's a professor, I cannot see a motivation of throwing your life and having to move. They had to move into a safe house because there were so many threats against them by Christians because they said she was lying. There's so many stories of women coming forward. Like, let's talk about Rachel Den Hollander. She uh, was the first gymnast to come forward against, well, she actually wasn't the first gymnast to come forward. She was like the sixth, but no one believed the other gymnast. But she also was told she she was lying, that she was doing it for money, all of these things. And the common thing we hear when survivors come forward, especially if it's years and years after the initial things, people are like, well, why didn't you come forward earlier? And oftentimes they did and no one believed them. So with Dr. Ford, she's people are like, why are you coming forward now? Well, well, he's trying to be <laughs> confirmed for the Supreme Court. I feel like this is a good time to come forward, even if it wasn't believed before. And so for me, I believed her. I worked with women. Her stories sounded just like them. And I believe women, in fact, when we look at the statistics about the number of women who are coming telling the truth when they come forward, not to mention all of the extreme costs, how there's a huge cost to coming forward. I shared my story. I didn't, I didn't even come forward about my sexual assault necessarily. I told friends about it, but it took me 10 years, yeah. 10 years to come forward. Why? Of course, women will wait because we see the way women, it's blamed them. There's shame heaped upon them. And so, yeah, I, I believed Dr. Ford. And, and when that happened, I had a friend message me and I say that I was the liberal agenda and she couldn't be associated with me. But again, just this, even this phrase, liberal agenda, because I believe women, because I believe survivors, I am suddenly reduced to a liberal agenda, which shows me, again, that your politics, if, if, if this is just simply about the gospel of Christ, there should be people that are conservative and liberal, and that shouldn't be a problem to you. Right. But it was, and that's what made her tie, you know, come against me. But again, I wanted this the statistic around showed 95 to 99.5% of women who come forward are telling the truth. And um, if we, if we even adjust it for the number of women that, you know, don't come forward and the courage it does come to take, like those rates are super high. It's very uncommon, almost impossible for a woman to come forward and, and not have some truth there. All of that to say, I believe Dr. Ford, she and people didn't like it. I, uh, we had to cancel home plans home for Thanksgiving because it really upset my in-laws. And even to this day, we have to have very strict boundaries of how we even interact with them, what conversations acceptable. We're now at the point where we will only meet with them in a public restaurant uh, because things have gotten so bad. Uh, because, and it's so funny because we are still Christians, we are still Christ followers, but because our politics might more lean a little less, because we might believe things that are equated with the liberal agenda, we're not Christian. And so I want to point that out, that there's such a confluence between conservatism and Christianity that people, it's a bigger deal for people if you move to, a, you know, left politics or even a more moderate politics than it is. Like I, we have never renounced our belief in Jesus Christ, but you are more upset that I am talking about women's rights, which is apparently the liberal agenda, than you are about me believing in Jesus Christ, because 
uh, it's almost become the gospel now. And I, re- I remember growing up being told you cannot be Christian and a Democrat. It's simply not true. And I'm not saying all Christians need to be liberal or Democrat. I'm saying that what makes us Christians is trying to follow the ways of Jesus Christ. I agree. What happened for you in this place of conflict and when you're facing all of this backlash and all this judgment from Christians, how did God meet you there? I actually have a really powerful story about that. I shared the story of how I quit my job after I had that experience with a man and had this moment of epiphany. My goodness, we, I am complicit in the harm of these women. Um, And so that's when I began um, to speak up. About a year after I quit my job and I had my, I started my podcast, I was saying, I believe Dr. Ford. And so, and I was also about to turn 30. Leading up to my birthday, we were having a lot of conflict with my in-laws and it was extremely painful. I cannot even describe it. We cried a lot. We didn't feel heard. We, We felt shamed to the point where it devolved. We kept on trying to make it right but it devolved to the point where we canceled our flights home and are to see them for, for the holidays. And then around this time was also the Kavanaugh hearings. And as a survivor of sexual assault to feel not only vulnerable that so much of society said, this is fine, but also to feel like, would you believe me if I told you what happened to me? Would you believe me? Or would you call me names? Would you send me death threats? It, it was an extremely vulnerable time on top of feeling rejected by my in-laws uh, to a high degree. Obviously, the reason I began speaking up is because I believed this is what God called me to do. I believe that I finally saw why women were being harmed. And of course, God is for women. Of course, God wants to see the liberation. Of course, he doesn't want to see them be harmed. So I felt that everything I was doing and the reason I had the staying power to do the things I was doing was because I believed in Jesus and because I believe that Jesus cared for women. And so it was a a weird time to continually be rejected in the name of Jesus when I was doing everything because of Jesus. And so um, this came to a head. I already shared it was the Kavanaugh hearings. It was my 30th birthday. And I went to a coffee shop because I was feeling weird and vulnerable and just wanted to sit down and process, have my quiet time, like a good Christian woman with God journaling. What is wrong? I feel like, I feel so hurt. I feel like I'm following you. Why is everyone against me? And, and I had a message pop up while I was typing, um, from a dear friend that I had been friends with for 10 years. And I thought, oh, this is birthday wishes. This is going to cheer me up. Um, and it was what I mentioned earlier, an email of really long winded message saying basically everything that it was so interesting because I was only believing one woman, but she conflated all of these other issues and said, God was against me. That was essentially what she said. And because God was against, I guess, the things that I was fighting for, uh, she did not want to support me because she couldn't have her name tied to the liberal agenda for her words. I felt like I was reduced to the liberal agenda. And I think because I was so vulnerable in this time, I started to question, maybe they're right. Maybe everyone is telling me that I'm against God. Maybe they're right. Why does this keep on happening? I can't take it anymore. And I remember just sobbing and crying and trying to gather up all of my things from Starbucks and and running out the door and, and going to drive home, but crying so hard that I can't 
drive. I can't even see <laughs> because my, I'm crying too hard. And so I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'll just sit and cry in my car until I can stop crying enough that I can see the road. And as I'm just sobbing in my car, thinking that maybe she's right, maybe God is against me, I have a woman knock on my door. And I have no idea who she is. I've never seen her in my life. Um, and I kind of look at her in like bewilderment and she's like, keeps motioning, like, come on, get out of the car. And I'm like, well, uh, something feels like I should, something me in me was drawn to her. And so, um, I got out of the car and still sobbing, still covered in snot. Um, and she just pulled me into a hug and said, I'm not going to let you leave here until you know how loved you are. Mm. And she prayed Jesus's name over me, Jesus's like pleasure in me, all of these things that I needed to hear that there's no way a stranger could know. And I'm just sobbing into her shirt while coffee people were gone. And like, there's like snot and mascara. And I don't know how long I cried there um, to her chest. Um, and I never said, I think... <laughs> anything because I was crying too hard I think the only thing I ever said to her was thank you um at the end of it um but I just remember in that moment feeling like I had been rejected by one version of the Christian God and fully embraced and loved and had good pleasure and 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 pride poured over me from another version to the fact that I felt like God sent that woman in that moment to remind me that I was not alone that God was closer than my skin. And whenever I start to doubt that God's with me, I remember that. And I'm like, no, God is sent. And I can't even describe what a divine moment it was for me that God literally sent a woman to remind me that I was loved and that I was doing good work and that, that he, she was with me closer than my skin when I thought that God had left me. I will never forget that. As I do this work, when I start to doubt, when I start to get those angry emails, it's funny. I just got an email recently from someone who, who told me I needed to repent a lot and then ended the email by saying, if I hadn't been raped yet, it was an injustice um, and that he could tell by my face that I was a whore. So this was right in the same lines of, you know, the email starts with repent because of Jesus, but you should be raped because you look like a whore. For me now, it's just remembering that God is with me when I doubt my voice, even the doubt, like even these messages I get are so clear that you don't see women as full people. Um, that it's just like, no, it just confirms what I'm supposed to do. And so my faith doesn't look the same way it did a decade ago, but it feels more real and authentic and free and liberating than it ever did. I don't feel like I need to perform to earn God or to earn God's love. It's innately um, in you. Yeah. And it's that love that drives me forward that I can get those emails and know that God is still with me. I just want to briefly mention, because one of the things that I've been following with Beth Allison Barr and with Beth Moore and the SBC and Mary DeMuth and all mm -hmm. of these people who, some of these people are on our podcast in season two. So it's very exciting. So stay tuned or listen to those if you haven't yet. But their work, yours included, Megan, you're included in that. Your work, mm -hmm. Beth's work, both of them, Beth Allison Barr and Beth Moore, 
Jen Hatmaker's work, Mary DeMuth's work, Rachel Denhollander's work, all of these disruptors that are being told to go home and be quiet, they have brought me closer to Jesus in ways that I haven't experienced. They push me into the Word of God. I open my Bible more. Mm -hmm. I pray more. I speak more about God's love and Jesus's life with strangers than I have in a long time. And so I just want to briefly say that, that the work of these women, the work of these disruptive, wonderful women is the work of God. And that's the kind of work we saw mm -hmm. and we see in the Bible from actual biblical women is disruptive work yep. from women, disrupting powers and principalities to draw people closer to God's heart and love. And so thank you for the work that you're doing. And I hope that you would remember that word in that moment because you are doing God's work. It's very good. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I also get emails from people. It's so funny because <laughs> I'm being told that I'm leading to people to hell, but I get an email at least you know, every couple of weeks that tell me you have brought me closer to God. I was ready to give up on my faith. And the fact that people like you exist are the only reason that I can hold on to it. And so I, it's so funny because I think I'm sending people to hell, but maybe I'm drawing them closer yeah. to God. For sure. I've noticed this yeah. trend where people are just throwing the whole thing out. They're throwing Christianity out because it's hurt them so badly. There are other perspectives I do want you, um, I know we're running up on time, so I would like us just maybe talk two more questions, if that's okay. One, I because of Ravi Zacharias and all of this information and the Duggars and Hillsong guy, I just I was up at like two o'clock with a sick baby last night in the morning and I was reading about the Hillsong pastor. Just light reading to help me go back to sleep. Just kidding, I didn't. But I'd like you to talk briefly about how is purity culture connected to rape culture? Because we haven't really touched on that in our podcast in season two or in season one. And so I would love to hear your perspective on the connection between purity culture and rape culture. I almost feel like purity culture gives men a pass to abuse and then say it wasn't their fault. I mean, even if you look at the phrases we grew up with, don't show it if it's not on the market. Did you guys hear that? Yeah, I, I did. definitely did. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, well, first of all, my body isn't a market. Like, why are you objectifying me? And why are you saying my body is a market? It's not. And secondly, you think you're entitled to shows to touch something because mm -hmm. it's showing. So does that mean you can go up and grab people's faces or their hand? Like, obviously, there's boundaries here. But what it's literally teaching is that if you see something that makes you feel something, it's on the market and you can touch it and you can grab it and it's whatever. And so the, those are the teachings that I grew up with. Like, first of all, my body is not an object. Uh, I feel like purity culture sought to stop the objectification of women, but all it did was shift it to little girls. Literally from the age of 12 or 13, women are being, women and men are being told that girls' bodies are objects. If you teach a young boy that he's not in charge of his sexual urges, he's not going to be in charge of his sexual urges because you have literally taught him that he is incapable of that. And so even this idea that women are responsible for men and their thinking and their thoughts, it's not only giving harmful messages to women, it's giving extremely harmful messages to men. 
Megan produces and hosts a powerful podcast titled Faith and Feminism, where she interviews people with great insight and perspectives on women's issues, social justice, and the deconstruction of our religion in pursuit of truth. And as if that weren't exciting enough, she's just written and published a book, Women Rising, and you can purchase that book wherever you like to buy books. I highly recommend that you go buy this book right now. Yeah, give it a five-star review. It is amazing. Megan, thank you so much for coming on our show. And as we conclude, where should our listeners go if they want to engage more with you and your work? Yeah, so you can find me um, on Instagram or Twitter. Probably Instagram is the most um, place I hang around. I am a millennial, so I'm on there um, more than other platforms. But my name is Megan Trans, M-E-G-H-A-N-T-S-C-H-A-N-Z. And that's the name of my website. My book is Woman Rising, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. If you type that in, it will pop up on wherever you want to buy your book. You can get it wherever books are sold. And I would love if you read it and reached out to me and let you, let me know what, know what you think. And then if you want to follow Faith and Feminism, you can search in any, wherever you listen to your podcast and just search for Faith and Feminism and you will find it. And we also have an Instagram page also called Faith and Feminism. Awesome. Thank you so much, Megan, for being on the All at Once podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. God, can you show me how to grow? Before you go, if you like what you hear, please consider contributing to our podcast via Patreon, which is a monthly giving platform for creators like us. Visit the show notes for details or our website at allatonce.us. Sarah and I also want to recognize the All at Once team who works tirelessly alongside us. Robin Boren is our marketing director, Molly Bays is our social media manager, Taylor Diggs, our intern, and Maddie Reyna, who designed all of our podcast logos. A special thanks goes out to Alita Caldwell, owner of Funky Monkey, a boutique and shop in our hometown. There are two more people I have to shout out before you stop listening to this episode, and that is Larry's Designs and Friendswood. And lastly, and probably one of the coolest people that I need to talk about is Kate Short. She wrote the music you hear in response to season one. Check out her hit single, 2 a.m., wherever you listen to your music. Thanks for listening. While the world keeps on revealing.